I'm super excited to have with me today Professor Craig Aleph, who is an expert in tax. I never thought I would say that I was super excited about talking about tax, but I am today, and I say that most sincerely. Craig graduated with a BCom and an LLB from the University of Otago in 1984. He then went on to complete his honours degree in law at Cambridge University in 1996. Then in 1989, Craig started working at KPMG, where he was later made partner. In 2001, Craig joined the law firm of Chapman Tripp, where he was a partner for eight years until 2009. He's continued consulting with that firm since. In 2008, he began teaching at the University of Auckland in the topic of tax, law and policy. In 2017, Craig completed his PhD in tax law from the University of Cambridge. Craig currently teaches tax law at the University of Auckland and is also the director of the Master of Taxation Studies programme. Craig was a member of the Permanent Scientific Committee of the International Fiscal Association for six years, the first New Zealander ever to be appointed to such role. Craig is currently a member of New Zealand Government Tax Working Group. Craig skilled in international tax, tax law, trust and dispute resolution. He's completed considerable research in tax law, particularly international tax law, corporate tax and tax avoidance. Craig has an award-winning book in the area of international and cross-border taxation in New Zealand, which was awarded the J.F. Northley Best Book Award in 2015. Craig's recently had published a book, Taxing the Digital Economy, Theory, Policy and Practice, which explores the question of how to tax multinational companies that operate in a highly digitised business model. In the book, Craig explains the problems with the existing international tax system and its inability to respond to the challenges posed by highly digitised companies. Craig also explores the new international tax rules and their likely effectiveness and highlights features that are likely to endure in the next wave of international tax reform. Craig, welcome. How are you today? I'm very good. Thank you, Chris. Fantastic. Look, the first thing that I wanted to talk to you about and sort of picking up on my earlier comment is tax law really exciting? I love it. And why do I love it? Well, I think it's because it affects everyone, whether we like it or not. And every time you go on a bus, every time you buy your lunch, you are part of the tax system. So it's very relevant. And it is also highly academic, but it's also intensely practical. At the end of the day, when you study tax and deal with tax issues, there's ultimately a very practical question, do I pay it or not? And so when you factor those sorts of practical, academic and its universal application to people, it becomes very interesting and very exciting. And also I would add, and perhaps with less enthusiasm, it's also highly political. Well, Craig, there's the old absolute truism that in life there's two things you can't avoid, tax and death. And often it's said that we don't talk enough about the reality of death. And do you think we really need to be talking more about the reality of tax and what purpose it serves? Because we all pay tax in one way or another, but it's generally not an area that attracts a lot of discussion and debate with the average person on the street. Is this something we should be talking more about? 
It's an excellent point, and it's completely appropriate. In the Tax Working Group, we did try very hard with engagement with society generally to outline the reasons for the tax system and why we need the tax and how it sensibly could be used. But I think one of the problems that we have as a society is that there isn't a great deal of visibility in tax, and we have made the tax system for most people for, you know, sort of probably 60 or more percent of our population usually don't engage much with the tax system at all. They don't file tax returns. Their tax is deducted at source. They therefore don't really know how much GST and how much income tax they're paying and they don't know how it's spent. And so that kind of, I wouldn't say it's ignorance because it's very hard to access that information unless you try really hard to do it. But the lack of engagement that we have, and I guess I get it, that we're all busy and we're all trying to make a living and to press on. But in some respects, I think the difficult debates that we had with the tax working group to deal with things like the taxation of capital gains and the, the future issues that we will have as a society as our population ages, all of those things tend to suggest that there is too much short-term thinking, too much me thinking rather than us thinking and so I think it is a our important debates to be had. Well maybe as part of that debate why don't we wind it back to at a high level first principles basis. From your perspective what are the key principles underlying a modern fair tax system in a democratic society like New Zealand or Australia? Well I think we have worked out there's a variety of traditional ways to view a tax system so efficiency and effectiveness is one point to start at and that's about making it easy to collect the tax and not very compliance heavy and those are the things that the business side of the world and indeed individuals like and so that's appropriate that's one good thing and technology does permit that and it's getting better the second bit which is the bit that I suppose many people perhaps the lawyers and and politicians would like rather than the economists is to do with the fairness of the system and what's in the base and what I mean by that is what gains are subject to tax and the rates of tax and those sorts of issues how whether the tax that's collected is regressive or progressive and what I mean by that is under a progressive tax system you require those that have more to pay more. Under a regressive tax you end up with the proportion of tax being paid by lower income people being higher and so if you think of GST as a regressive tax it means that if you've got say a hundred dollars left and you're spending you know quite a proportion of Actually, that's an unrealistic example. If you've got $500 left in the week and you're spending 400 of it on groceries for your family and yourself, then you're paying a much greater proportion of GST than if you had $5,000 left at the week and you still were only spending four or $500 on the consumption of those groceries. You mentioned fairness in the system. How would you define fairness in a tax system? Well, fairness is a really, really tough concept. And I think it's very interesting, just at the minute on the tax policy programme by the current government, they're designing a new Tax Principles Act. And fairness will be a component of consideration in tax policy. But what is fairness? Well, my fairness and your fairness might be two different things. And I think in the end, it comes down to looking at, there are some tools that are used to assess fairness. Uh, one of them is horizontal equity, which is a process that examines whether the same amount of tax is paid on the same amount of income. So you might have someone who, you know, perhaps the 
the best example, and I, and I know it's a controversial example, but if you have someone who works hard, earns $100,000 of income a year and pays tax, they'll probably pay under the current sort of rates somewhere in the vicinity of, say, $28,000 on the 100000 In contrast, someone owns a residential rental property, they manage to navigate their way out of the various rules that are catching it, and they earn 100000 of economic income. I've deliberately used those words. Rather than capital gain. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because in the end, you can see the concept of capital is a 18th century concept derived from trust law. Many economists would look at it and say, well, actually, you've got an accretion to value. Your overall economic worth has grown by 100000 and yet you've paid uh, no tax. So from a horizontal equity perspective... Two people have earned the same amount of economic income, 100000 uh, One's paid 28000 of tax and the other's paid nothing. I guess the person earning a wage or a salary isn't just paying 28000 in tax. I mean, there's, there's other taxation components that their income goes towards. ACC and other things. Yeah, you're correct. But let's go back a little bit because I think you're reaching a really good point here. And that is, wouldn't it just be a matter of fairness that we all make a contribution towards the costs of being a member of the society we live in? We all benefit from the public hospitals, the public schools, the public roads, the fact that we've got systems in place to make life work. And that all comes at a cost. And the point you're really making is, is that you've got one person who gets up each morning goes to work, works eight hours a day, maybe less, maybe more, but they pay tax. Whereas you've got a person who doesn't do anything other than they own a rental property and they're not paying any tax at all. And that just seems unfair. Yeah, it is. It is. And I know it's oversimplifying the argument, but it is unfair. And it's unfair for a variety of different reasons, but it would include the fact that it's largely the wealthiest people in our society who make the capital gains. I mean, when we did the work on the tax working group, 80% of the gains are derived by 20% of the population. And of that 20%, was there any analysis done of the age demographic of that 20%? Because I get the impression, or it's my perception, that we've got an intergenerational issue that sits there. I won't say conflict because that sounds too dramatic, but is the 20% made up more of the boomers than, say, Gen Y, X or any other letter that we want to apply? Yeah, well, look, absolutely. For some really obvious reasons, firstly, they have had longer to save. And so, of course, they will be wealthier from that perspective. But probably most importantly, they bought their house or houses, because many of them own more than one, for next to nothing in today's terms. They may have paid 30000 for a house which is now worth a million. It raises other issues in terms of that intergenerational because they are the generation that have benefited from cheap oil, high employment, access to free education. It really seems that the younger generation, everything seems against them in terms of having the same start. And with basic aspirations, with if one was to say housing's a human right, just to be able to exercise the human right of being able to buy a house. Absolutely, yeah. I think that there are lots of debates to be had as to whether tax is a solution to the housing crisis that we have experienced and are experiencing. But it's definitely tough on young people when you think about the fact that they're paying for their education and they are facing 
really a prospect where many of them can't buy their own houses unless they have a hand from their own families. So that is creating inequality and an element of division between the haves and the have-nots in our society. So so I do think you know, tax has a part to play. We tried very hard on the Tax Working Group to be pointing out not just that issue of inequality, but also how bleak the future looks as a result of the ongoing ageing of that population. And the latest Treasury long-term forecasts, basically, if we continue to pay pensions and healthcare costs, if those are maintained at their current levels, the forecast rate of tax as a percentage of GDP goes to an unacceptably high level. And when you think that if that is to be born out of both GST and an income tax rate, it would make the need for an increasingly smaller number of workers to pay an increasingly higher rate of tax unsustainable. Craig, isn't there an element also of unfairness? That smaller base of tax earners are not only having to save for their retirement, but they're effectively paying for the older generation's retirement because while the older generation did pay tax when they were working, that tax just went into a consolidated fund and went off for various other things. It wasn't allocated towards funding their future retirement. Doesn't that create somewhat of an unfairness where we're going to be expecting future tax earners to be, in essence, paying for two sets of retirements? Well, they'll be hoping that a further generation in the future will pay for their retirement. But the system is problematic, isn't it? And and KiwiSaver was a great initiative, but it probably doesn't deliver yet the level of, of support that would make it. I think all of these points are right. I don't have a crystal ball as to how it will work out, but I think what we're recognising, what Treasury have thrown up, is the fact that there does need to be further discussion and further debate. And I do hope that the debate, I mean, one comment I would make, and it's nice to have the opportunity to talk about it after the end of the Tax Working Group report, was really seized on by self-interest groups, by property investor associations, by wealthy people who had, and by the media themselves, who were looking at the negatives and not giving, I don't think, a, a fair discussion. And I think even, you know, this is when now, what, two, three years on, the problems, you know, have grown more sharp. And the solution, unfortunately, that the, that the government has painted itself into a corner on to decrease uh, the deductibility of interest expense is far from a preferred uh, policy. But I understand why they've had to do it. Sticking with the topic of people that don't pay tax, let's talk about large multinational digital companies that operate in the digitised economy. This is an area that's undergoing radical, radical change. And when I say that, if we go back to post-World War I, the 1920s, the Accord Compromise around taxation, it seems that in 100 years, this is really the big issue. How do you tax these large multi-billion dollar companies that just aren't paying tax in some countries, including countries like New Zealand and Australia. That kind of leads us into your book. What was the main driver for writing your book? It's a fascinating topic, actually, really, and and you're 100% right. This is a regime for international tax that was set up around about the end of the First World War, and you can sort of see the smokestacks of industrialised Europe rebuilding 
after that sort of damaged period. And so the whole regime is based on some key assumptions which no longer exist. And my motivation for writing the book was I was just always fascinated by the problems and issues in international tax. And I was extremely lucky. I was awarded the New Zealand Law Foundation International Fellowship. And that gave me a a bit more breathing space than normal in order to go away to Oxford University and to write the book. And didn't do it all there. I did some before I left and a little bit after we returned. And the motivation in terms of a topic really was because at the time that I started on the project, there didn't seem to be a solution to this problem. And let me describe just a little bit of the problem to you. The thing about digital businesses is that many of them operate through what are called multi-sided platforms. And these multi-sided platforms are things that exist in intangible form and they are a connection between different groups of people and so you might have for instance social network users such as Facebook users who are continuing to attract their network by posting their pictures and everything else. That's on one side so you've got this massive it's called the network effect which is the aggregation of people all of whom are potential consumers. On the other side of the platform are the advertisers And the advertisers are people who pay a fee to Facebook to allow their content to be visible and directed towards the social network users on the other side. Now, all of that is done digitally. It's all done on a platform. The money that's made by Facebook by charging those advertisers isn't connected with any form of taxable presence in any of the countries in which the network operators are using. So you have this sort of marvellously effective international business regime which enables you to achieve massive scale and have a huge number of advertisers and consumers of that advertising without any taxable presence. And it's well documented that those large multinationals effectively could set up structures where they paid not only no tax in the countries where their consumers were located, but they also would not pay any tax in, in fact, their home country either because they established them using complicated structures involving tax havens. And it drove a lot of the international tax reforms. Let's break it down to maybe just using some examples of what we're talking about. Let's talk about music. So once upon a time, a band would go into a recording studio and they'd record their tracks. And after the recording had been edited, they'd go off to be printed on a record on some vinyl. You know, there'd be some people listening when I say even cassettes, and they'd go, well, it was a cassette. So there'd actually be these products that would then get packaged up and put into boxes and containers and shipped around the world. And they would arrive eventually at a record store where the end user would hand over hard-earned cash to a record store, and in return they'd get the record. And, and that way you could see the product and the end user, and it was capable of being taxed. But we, we don't live necessarily in that environment exclusively anymore. We're now in the age of digitisation, and in this example, music streaming. So you look at Tidal or Spotify or Apple iTunes, There isn't actually anything physical that's tracking across. But what's happening here is that these companies are charging the end user or consumer, either here in New Zealand or Australia, but the profit base in which they're allocating that to is placed elsewhere and they're able to somehow, through the magic of international tax, avoid paying any tax on these things. Now, is that a good thing? 
Well, no, 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 it's not. And it's a great example. There are many that have found I used social media before. This is digital download type of products. And of course, what used to happen was you would find that GST on those vinyl or on the cassettes would be payable on importation and then would be payable by the consumer at the store. And income tax would be payable by the store owner on the profits that they would make on that distribution. So digitalization has a process called disintermediation and it's the cutting out of the middleman. Now we deal directly. And so the international tax regime was better in terms of GST because you may remember there's the, what, the so-called Netflix tax and I can't quite recollect, but I think it was about 2018 that New Zealand imposed effectively GST on offshore supplies of services. And so we expect them to register and they do and we pay GST. But GST is a tax paid by the consumer so it's a cost that's borne by the consumer. Income tax and corporate income tax is a tax which needs to be or should be paid by the multinational themselves. So they are different forms of tax. You're aiming at a different taxpayer. One is a consumption. One is, in fact, the profits made by the enterprise which is carrying on the activity. But in this globalised environment, going back to your point that it's tax paid on the profit, but of course these large multinationals can adjust their profit reporting by shifting some of their expenses. An example is this, the advertising or marketing for Apple, they can say, well, we have incurred those costs in a high tax environment, But then in a lower tax environment, they don't post those particular costs. That's a problem as well, isn't it? Yeah, look, absolutely. And in that book that you were talking about before, Taxing the Digital Economy, I think there are seven challenges to the international tax regime. I started off talking about the biggest one, which is the tax on the digital companies, because there seemed to be no solution to that problem. But the other types of problems that you were referring to, which are transfer pricing problems where profits are allocated, There are issues of tax competition between different countries. There are a wide variety of inadequate taxation on the basis of residence and taxation of intangibles. I don't suppose we have time to go through all of them. The bottom line is that there were more than just the problem with the taxation of the big multi-sided platform digital businesses. There were, in fact, a whole lot of quite significant systemic issues and they needed to be addressed at the same time. This conversation is a conversation that's being taken place on a global stage. This isn't a conversation that's just happening here in New Zealand. It appears that the developed world, if we just say the OECD nations, really started thinking about these issues and perhaps we take it back to the the G7. Back in the mid-1980s, I think they must have seen this coming on. We're now in 2021. What has the international community been doing in the last 30 years? Well, I think the problems were recognised, you're right, in the 70s and 80s and then working through. But they didn't, I think it like, it was a problem that governments around the world could accept until the global financial crisis hit in 2007, 2008. And when that happened, suddenly the big countries in the world realised that they didn't have the normal level of corporate tax that had been paid and they actually didn't have much other tax either from individuals as the whole world economy suffered a shock. And so they suddenly started to realise that in actual fact they were not only short of revenue, they were short of information on what the multinationals had been doing. And the base erosion and profit shifting programme began. It was commenced by the OECD effectively with a mandate from the 
G20. So you really do have the big powerhouse economies, the major players in the world, getting together and starting to identify, firstly, what are the problems and then what are the potential solutions. And then began an extraordinary period of time, really sort of three years or more, where they came up with a 15-point action plan. And those actions sort of dealt with some of the bad practices, like the use of hybrid instruments and entities. They dealt with the way interest deductions had been claimed by companies, which is a very good and highly effective form of passing profits from one jurisdiction to another. They dealt with control foreign companies. They dealt with treaty abuse because people had been using treaties in a way in which they weren't intended. They dealt with transfer pricing, the taxation of intangibles, and a whole lot of things. But action one was the problem action area, and that was the taxation of the digital economy. Because even though they finished and presented their report in 2015, Basically, the report on Action 1 on the taxation of the digital economy said, well, we don't know what to do. Fundamentally, I mean, it took hundreds of pages to say that, but in the end, they didn't have a solution, and they realised it was unfinished business. The OECD, of course, has got 139 members, and we've now got 130 that appear to have signed up to the commitments for reform based on the OECD's report that was published last month in July. What the report really focuses on, I think, and I'll ask you whether you agree with this, but it really says that the mischief it's trying to address or resolve is that digitalisation and globalisation have undermined the basic rules that have governed the taxation of international business profits for the past century. Large multinational enterprises are able to earn significant revenue in foreign markets without those markets seeing much, if any, tax revenue as a result. Would you agree that that's the mischief that underlying these reforms? Yeah, it's certainly a major part of it. I think, just as I was saying before, if you consider that the... 14 of the 15 action points were started to be implemented because these things take time in 2015 onwards and there was a multilateral instrument that was signed uh, shortly after of which New Zealand's a party to. Then you can sort of see that there was an awful lot going on in a lot of the associated areas but at the core of it was the fact that the digitalisation of business had led to It's almost like the poster child of international tax planning, these large multinationals being able to really decide where they could pay tax. And these things are known as, in tax terms, they're called the base erosion and profit shifting. And BEPS 1, which is the base erosion profit shifting 1, is to do with all the other steps that were addressed. And BEPS 2 is to do with the current proposals that have just been announced. I would just say, Chris, to describe a little bit more about the body that have issued this. So the OECD has much less than 139 countries. It has, I think, around about 40 or so. But what they've done, it's been very clever from an international political perspective, is that they have gathered non-OECD countries into this inclusive framework. And so the 139 country group represents 95 plus percent of the world's GDP. If you're not part of the inclusive framework, you're either too small or you're just, perhaps I shouldn't say this, but too weird, like North Korea. You know, like it's, you just are not mainstream, if that's the right way to describe it. So there will be lots of reasons why countries aren't in there, but they're not really mainstream members of the world community. Is the reason, Craig, for that also that the individual sort of more unilateral by each nation approach, you mentioned before the Netflix tax, I mean the United Kingdom had a diverted profit tax, India had a digital services tax, we've even tried our own little attempt at it, 
it just doesn't work. You need a collective approach on an international basis to be able to deal with these multinational companies. Is it the, the collectivization is the key. Is that right? Well, I think it's really, really interesting. So we go back in history and consider the 15 action plans are out there. But remember I said that action one, they didn't know what to do. Some countries got really frustrated about the fact that there was no concerted or no consensus basis for how to deal with these big multinationals. So they said, basically, we'll stuff you. We are going to do our own thing. Uh, So the Indians did that and they instituted a levy on digital advertising to capture Google and Facebook and and the like at the rate of 6% on any proceeds that were paid out of India. So subsequently, they were ahead of the pack a little bit and other countries responded in different ways, but the ones you were talking about, the Europeans couldn't. They tried to collectively come up with a solution but couldn't because some of the northern European countries and Germany weren't totally behind it. Uh, So you ended up with the French, the Italians and the English in particular, those three, but there were other countries saying, well, we'll we'll just do this by ourselves. And they did two things. The English and the Australians actually did the thing you were talking about, diverted profit taxes, which is a form of taxation on certain activities where it was obvious that the companies were diverting their profits from a taxable presence in a jurisdiction. But they also went even further and said, well, okay, even where you don't have a taxable presence, we still want a taxing right and we will impose it through these unilateral digital services taxes. Now, on on the whole, you have to sort of say, well, were they a bad idea? The answer is not 100% a bad idea. It's just that they are all diverse. No one's acting together. There are problems with the way in which it's structured. For instance, in order to be effective, they need to be set up in a particular way, have a particular configuration, which is outside the normal double tax treaty network. The consequence of them being outside those normal double tax treaties is that the tax becomes not creditable, so you will have double taxation. So the actual digital companies weren't too excited about the idea. In the end, they said, oh, actually, we'd sooner have a multilateral solution because we don't want to be dealing with 50 countries around the world that are all collecting under a different basis. And by the way, the tax that they collect, we won't be able to credit back into our uh, residence. Well, let me ask you some questions about that multilateral solution. So the OECD has produced this report last month in July, and the solution it's come up with has two pillars. Can you tell us about the first pillar? Sure. The first pillar is the pillar that I wrote about in, in the book in particular. It's about the taxation of the digital economy. And they moved on, really, so that originally the focus was on carefully scoping the types of digital businesses that would be tackled. And what has happened has been a broadening of the scope so that in actual fact it's all types of profits if the company is sufficiently large. And they are actually at this point in time, which seems, and New Zealand probably will almost certainly won't have one company in this. Isn't this sufficiently large? What they've assessed that at as being 20 million euro. 20 Uh, billion. 20 20 billion, I should say, euro. (laughs) That's the New Zealand economy. (laughs) Well, yes, it's just to put that into its context, the amount of tax that the New Zealand economy produces is something like $70 or $80 billion. So this can't be applying to large numbers of companies then? Probably no more than 100 around the world. And so they are the super large, super profitable companies. But I did hear that those top 100 companies produce $500 billion worth of profit 
And in simple terms, pillar one is about saying that a proportion of those profits that they are making, and they, they need to be really profitable companies as well too, so they won't be loss-making companies, even with those turnovers, that a proportion of the residual profits, which are a calculation of the, of the profits, will be able to be taxed in the country where the sales have been made. Yeah, the user and the consumer. So exactly. the person actually handing over the cash. That's right. So 20% of the residual profit will be allocated to those source countries, to the market countries where... I don't think this will be a large sum of money, by the way. So I think it's like in anything, and when you see tax reform, if you get a significant... uh, This is a fundamental change. This is such a fundamental change because the whole 1920s, 1930s compromise is based on single-entity taxation calculated on an arm's-length basis where the profits that are attributed must be attributed to a physical presence in jurisdiction. So you've got some really, like, and here we've got none of those things applying. We've got worldwide profits being allocated to a market jurisdiction where there is no physical presence, and it's not on, so it's not on a separate entity. So none of the bases upon which the 1920s and 1930s compromise are applicable. So in those terms, whilst we're starting off with those large companies, I mean, Apple's one of them. If I go and buy myself an Apple iPhone, and it's hard to buy a decent one for under $1,000 now, but I go and buy one, I know the GST's going into the public kitty. Can I now assume that there'll be some part of the money I'm handing over may make its way back to New Zealand in terms of some declared profit under this scheme? Yeah, that's right. So that's exactly what will happen. <laughs> Mind you, uh, you also, when you think about it, you are actually buying a physical profit from a reseller here in New Zealand. So there is some tax that's being paid, income tax, corporate income tax, through that. Through the reseller. Through the reseller. So that is part of. But when they come to, if you were... Say buying a a song off iTunes. Yeah, 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 exactly. So in those situations, then part of their business model obviously is purely digital and the allocation of those profits would be 100%, previously 100% untaxed. In some instances, they may have been paying some tax here beforehand and this will top that up to the approved level, give them a credit for any that they have previously paid here. So this is a very good thing. I mean, the other important thing to note is that in seven years' time, they've already locked in the fact that it'll move from 20 billion to 10 billion as a threshold. So once the door is ajar and the world works out how to actually do this because, you know, there's some clear amounts of difficult practicalities to, then in seven years' time it won't be just 100 companies, it might be 1,000 companies. Is this a little bit like, and I can't remember when the change to GST occurred, but it seems to be somewhat more palatable to increase a tax rather than introduce a new tax. So is, is what you're saying that in seven years' time the threshold will become lower, they get a bigger capture, bigger scope, and then that would possibly open the door to continuing that process where eventually anyone who's making profits out of a digitalised economy can expect to have to be paying some tax back to their, the country where their end users are, end consumers are. Look, absolutely right. And so remember that there's a lot of formula involved here and we're moving from a situation where there's been zero taxation to a situation where there is some taxation. So the, the thresholds, the scope of who's caught are important and then even the rate of profit, because only 20% of those residual profits are going to the market. You could, through agreement, through multilateral agreement, which 
will take a lot of process, by the way, but you could make, instead of 20%, it could be 40%. So there are levers that, once the door is ajar, the situation becomes possible to make some, you know, the 2020s compromise, which is what we are observing and seeing at the minute, will be a compromise that will be changed again. But because it's formula-based, it will lend itself, exactly as you said, with GST going from 10% to 125 to 15 It will lead to those progressive changes. And it has been very difficult to get 130 countries to agree on what is being proposed here. And the question is, there won't be a great deal of appetite to change it for a period of time. So I think they were very wise to do the seven-year lock-in right now and then I guess after seven years, they'll look at it again. You mentioned earlier on about one of the difficulties being tax competition between jurisdictions and probably one of the more notable ones is Ireland, the move of Microsoft head office to Ireland because of the cheap taxation base. Is that what Pillar 2 is going to try and remedy? Can you tell us about Pillar 2? Yeah, so Pillar 2 is the second component here, and this is really a minimum tax And so what it does, and it says that if you are multinational and you have some subsidiaries around the world who are not paying tax in that jurisdiction, and the level that they've fixed at at this particular point in time is 15%. So if you are paying less than 15% tax, then the residence country of the multinational will have the right to receive a top-up. And there are various other components to there, but the estimates are that there is, in fact, $150 billion worth of tax. It's from Pascal Saint-Hermain, who is the director of tax in the OECD. And that, that I guess it's a, it's a combination of the point that you're raising about tax competition. And very interestingly, it's actually come from the Americans in this situation. So you would think that Pillar 1, you know, the top 100 companies and mostly digital that this is not in American interests to have Pillar 1, and I think largely that has been the reason why it's been unresolved for a long period of time and certainly wasn't going to be resolved with the Trump administration. Things changed when the Biden administration came, but even so, the Americans are far more keen, I think, on Pillar 2 than they are on Pillar 1. They want Pillar 1 and they want it to be all sizes of companies rather than just digital because they do have the the bulk of the big digitals. But they also want this tax from uh, the use of subsidiaries in in foreign jurisdictions. So American companies are caught up in that in a pretty major way. Do you think this will be the end of tax havens? Tax havens have been on the way out for some time now. So it's become increasingly hard for people to legally hide their money. And so I think Generally speaking, it's a combination of two things. I think it's the globalisation and digitalisation and the collection of information and the increasing attitude of intolerance towards companies being selfish towards other countries. And so a combination of those two mean that you wouldn't want to be in the business of being a tax haven. Now, do you think the OECD can really guarantee that all countries that have signed up to this package will actually implement it? No, I don't think they can necessarily, but I think there is a critical mass here. I think the key signatories in Pillar 1, because there's only 100 companies at this point in time, well, say, in crude terms, of those top 100 companies, around about 40% are in the US. So I think the Americans are very keen on this whole thing. The others, you might be surprised, have a guess which is the next region in the world that would have the highest number of top 100 multinationals. I would have thought China, only because of the size of its economy. 
Well, you're right. It is Asia Pacific. Yeah. So if you think China, India, Korea. So I think of, you know, sort of round about 30% or more of the world top 100 multinationals are in Asia Pacific and then Europe and then Central America and, and the like. Do you have any views on what maybe developing countries are going to get out of this deal? Well, they have particular concerns. The attitude, a lot of developing countries are quite keen on tax competition, actually, they, in the sense that they want to attract capital and they want to have the opportunity to offer concessions to make it more attractive for foreign investment. For that reason, they're not, it sort of sounds a bit counterintuitive, but they're not necessarily all that excited about Pillar 2. But I think the fact... That, that's the 15%. Yes, yes. Yes. Do you think the 15% is too low? Possibly, yeah. Possibly that could be another move. There'll be the obvious people who have not voted for it and the inclusive framework countries like Ireland and Hungary and one assumes that they're they're just either waiting to see what will happen or they don't think it's politically acceptable within their own jurisdiction. But there will be some possibility of movement in all of these situations because the, the, you know, the timetable from here becomes about, you know, sort of like whilst the broad political agreement is in place and it's essentially political, the details, the, the actual machinery and how it will operate in practice, they've got an aggressive timetable for it, but I think it will take quite some time to put in place. You mentioned the point that some of these companies actually want this programme. The solution. Is there an element of the taxation equivalent of greenwashing going on here where some of these companies are thinking to themselves, let's uh, get this program in place so we can quell the criticism that we're not paying our fair share for what we're taking? Is there an element of that, do you believe? Yeah, I think so. I, th- I think that's right. I think they want to be seen to be good social citizens, but I think actually it's probably the spectre of having 30 to 50 unilateral digital taxes, which has probably made them pretty happy with this. And I think you could maybe measure, I mean, it's not to say they'll have massive compliance costs and it will no doubt cause armies of... Tax lawyers suddenly find themselves redundant. Well, oh, just think of that. Well, no, I think it'll it'll grow. It'll <laughs> actually grow the, grow the work still because... Largely speaking, the current, the 1920s, 1930s regime, you take a country like New Zealand, on the whole, really, I don't think there wouldn't have been as much work avoiding the PE thresholds, the taxable nexus sort of arguments that some of that will remain because, remember, Pillar 1 will only apply to the top 100 companies. Well, there's an awful lot of multinationals doing business in New Zealand that are not in that top 100. So is this good news for New Zealand and Australia? Can we look forward to increased economic prosperity as a consequence of this, or is it really just tinkering around the sides? No, I see it as an absolutely fundamental change. So it is definitely a terrific step in the right direction as a matter of policy. The practicality, i.e. the amount of tax, the compliance costs, and whether it actually sort of falls into place in quite the way we intended, they're all undecided yet. But the point is, the way things were, the 1920s, 1930s compromise was a completely unsustainable international tax regime. Something had to be done. Something would have been done. It would have been either unilateral taxes or this multilateral solution. And common sense has prevailed. We will end up with a better multinational regime and we will end up, I think, for our countries, for Australia and New Zealand, 
we will end up with more tax. And and as time goes by, I think it'll become increasingly fairer. There will be a, it's really just a change. And the 1920s compromise made a lot of sense. It was about, all these things are compromises and you've got rich industrialised nations dealing with developing countries and you've got different mixes of agendas and economic profile. So in the end, whatever you end up with is going to be something that no one likes completely. But the question is whether it's better than what was there before. And it's definitely a case this is better than what it was. Professor Craig Aliff, thank you very much for coming on board the Law Down Under podcast with me today. I also want to again congratulate you on the publishing of your book, Taxing the Digital Economy. Thank you very much. And I think we have delivered an exciting podcast on tax. And I see we would do it, and I think we've done it. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You're welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at patterson.co.nz. That's p-a-t-t-e-r-s-o-n dot c-o dot n-z. Thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law, its application, and the future of the law here down under. Thank <laughs> you.